Ludus Nobis, Episode 14, for September 27th, 2008, From Side to Side. Novus, the podcast dedicated to the art of interaction. Here I talk about digital games, interactive fiction, and role-playing. And today I'm going to talk about a classic of the digital games world, Super Mario Brothers. It's probably the most famous video game ever, featuring the most famous video game character ever. It defined an entire method of, of gameplay. It had a hauntingly catchy soundtrack. It had impressive graphics for the time. It portrayed a strange and disturbing world. And it was a decent amount of fun. Super Mario Brothers is one of those games that has influenced and affected every game that has followed afterwards. Even video games that don't seem to be related, say adventure games or puzzle games, have been very much affected by the fact that Super Mario Brothers pretty much single-handedly ended the great video game crash of the 80s. There was a period of two years when home console video games were dead for all intents and purposes. They there was an there was a huge uprising in the number of games that were produced many of them low quality which resulted in pretty much the market vanishing no one could tell what games were good there was too much on the market no one could really make any money and all the major game consoles basically collapsed and for 2 years video games were basically considered this dead fad you still had computers that had video games on them, but there was less of a focus without the, the consoles as competition. And it took the Nintendo Entertainment System and Super Mario Brothers as its runaway flagship product in order to remind people of what this thing of a digital game was and to kind of generate a resurgence in popularity. And that is responsible for many of the the games that we have today indirectly because the Nintendo Entertainment System had games on it that were incredibly influential to, to later 
works. Final Fantasy, The Legend of Zelda, are are two big ones in addition to Super Mario Brothers. And it's likely, in my opinion, if the Nintendo Entertainment System hadn't picked up, then the Sega Genesis never would have come around as an attempt at competition to it. We wouldn't see probably the game consoles we have today, and the digital gaming world would be very different. But Super Mario Brothers did something else, which is it it evolved and elevated the platforming gaming mechanic. Before Super Mario Brothers, there were platform games if, if that, that we would probably fit into the category if we looked at them today. There were games where you ran and you jumped. But they, by and large, were of two categories. A single screen game, say Bubble Bobble, where the character is exploring a small arena where they're trying to defeat all the enemies or something and move on to the next level. Or a sort of hurdle jumping game um, like Pac-Land or Adventure Island where you're running along a generally flat surface jumping over obstacles. What Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers rather, provided was the exploration of a large space with this vertical jumping component to it. The suddenly, instead of it being a either a rhythm game or a strategic exploring a small space game, it was you needed to progress by jumping, and specifically by jumping on things. Jumping on enemies was something that Super Mario Brothers pretty much introduced to the world. Now, the, the character of Super Mario, of course, wasn't introduced in Super Mario Brothers. Um, his first game was Donkey Kong. He appeared in the rest of the Donkey Kong series, some other games, Wrecking Crew, um, and the original Mario Brothers, which wasn't the same sort of game as Super Mario Brothers. Mario Brothers was sort of a competitive, jumping around a single room, getting points game, rather than a progressing through levels game. And there were a whole bunch of different things that Super Mario Brothers did that it might not have been the first to do, but it certainly was one of the first and the most well-known to do it. Things like the ability to skip levels through finding a secret, uh, the, the, the fact that there are alternate paths and secret areas that you can find to get extra coins and such. Um, the ability to collect coins to get extra lives is, is, is something that, that sets it apart from other games. And it, we might not think of it as sophisticated plotting right now, but Super Mario Brothers was the first game I can think of uh, for a console that had a plot twist in it. The fact that the princess is indeed in another castle, you know, the first time you play it, if you've never ever played Super Mario Brothers before, that's going to be a bit surprising. After the break, I'm going to take a look at the gameplay of Super Mario Brothers, which is quite clever and well put together, and is something that I think we overlook as people who play modern digital games, just simply because it's so familiar and old that we don't see all the nifty little tricks that it pulls.
John Kirk has written a book called Design Patterns of Successful Role-Playing Games, which is an attempt to define and identify certain commonalities between tabletop role-playing games and the rules and mechanics that they use. And one of the quite valuable things that, that he does in this is highlight the existence of something that he calls a gauge, which is basically a value, a scalar value, a number that's associated with a character or a state of play. And he looks in this book periodically at how certain gauges are affected by other things. So one gauge could be experience points, which can then be used to increase other gauges. I think that this is something that's good to look at with video games, digital games as well, where the gauges are usually simply some variable in, in memory, some variable in, in the code for the digital game that is important to gameplay. So if we, if we look at Super Mario Brothers using Kirk's approach, we can identify a few gauges real easily. Um, the, the two most obvious gauges are the score and the coin count. When every time you collect a coin in Super Mario Brothers, you increment the count of the number of coins you've collected, which is maintained across lives, across deaths. And score is increased by just about anything you do in the game, anything you collect, any block you break, any enemy you kill, any level you defeat, you get a certain number of points based on how you defeat the level and how many seconds are left on the game clock. Game clock is another gauge that slowly decreases, and your status as Mario or Luigi can be seen as a gauge. You, you have one of three states. You're either Jumping Mario, the, the normal, regular kind of Mario, or you're Super Mario, who is bigger, or... Um, Fireflower Mario, who can spit fireballs. And these three represent your health. They give you an extra hit that you can take before dying. And then, of course, lives are, I think, the remaining important gauge. You could look at which level you're on as a gauge, but I don't see that that's all that important to the gameplay itself. What's interesting is how all these gauges tie together and shape the gameplay. One of the most overarching gauges is the timer. Each level, you only have a certain amount of time to play it. If you run out, you get a time up, you lose a life. So if you can't complete the game in the amount of time required, then you can't complete the game. So that imposes a sort of urgency to the player's actions. The fact that there is a minimum amount of time means that you can't take as much time as you might want to carefully consider everything, which encourages Mario's feeling of running and jumping and moving fast. The lives mechanic is, is very interesting because it, it has the immediate obvious effect of you can only fail a certain number of times. So if you fall off a pit, 
or get hit by an enemy when you're regular Mar regular little Mario, then you lose life. But the fact that you can gain lives through gameplay that's not just achieve a certain score is quite interesting because it means that there is a reason to collect coins because when your coin count reaches 100, you gain an extra life and your coin count is reset. So because of that, as you're playing, you're encouraged to go out of your way to collect the coins. And something that was pointed out by Kirby Kid on his blog Critical Gaming is that coins are never placed in your primary path. So in order to get a coin when you're playing Super Mario Brothers you have to go out of your way, you have to jump, you have to explore an alternate path. And that means that you're encouraged not to just run straight through a level. You're encouraged to take time in opposition to your time limit in order to get extra coins, in order to try and hit blocks to see if any of them have hidden coin blocks inside them, to try and go down pipes, which might result in a, in a room with, with coins in it. And that exploration, and especially the fact that you don't know what pipes may contain gateways to special rooms, means that the gameplay evolves beyond the run-and-jump-over-hurdles gameplay of many earlier running-and-jumping games, and instead it's fully exploring the vertical space, which is appropriate because the primary verb and the one that you use overwhelmingly over any other th actions in the game is to jump. As a result, you jump to, to hit enemies, you jump to avoid pits, you jump to get coins, you jump against blocks in order to break them to gain access to coins or to get more coins. And so it all ties together very neatly with this jumping mechanic. The other gauge that, that I haven't discussed in depth is the health level that you have. There's a, an interesting decision that was made by the developers of Super Mario Brothers which is that at any time you are never more than two hits away from death. At any time jumping into a pit will kill you. But if you have either a fire flower or a mushroom you are returned to little Mario and then hit as little Mario you die. Now you can only get a fire flower if you're already Super Mario. There's clearly an option that was not taken where if you get hit as Fire Mario you get reduced to Super Mario. That doesn't happen in Super Mario Brothers. There was a conscious choice made to reduce the amount of damage you could take. So it's not, it's never three strikes you're out, it's always two strikes or one strike and you're gone. So we've got this, this interplay of urgency with caution and urgency with prudency. So because you've got this time limit, you need to hurry. However, hurrying reduces your reflex time, which means you might get hit, and you're never more than two hits away from death. Additionally, in order to prepare yourself for a possible death, you should be collecting coins. And collecting coins takes time, which you can only do if you've got enough time left on the clock. So there's this interesting interplay and strategy that goes on in the player's mind where they're balancing the need to move quickly with the need to take one's time. 
And if we didn't have the time limit there, I think that Super Mario Brothers would feel like a lot more of a cerebral game, if you could call it that. Um, but but you definitely take time more. You'd be more willing to maybe break every block you could. Breaking blocks is another thing that relates to the health mechanic, where if you're little Mario, you can't break blocks, and so certain paths aren't available to you, which means that there's never a point at which you have to break blocks in order to proceed, just like there's never a point at which you will collect, you have to collect a coin in order to proceed. So there's this complex interplay of your actions in the game and how it all ties into the basic primary mechanic, which is jumping, moving, and jumping are the two mechanics. And they're tied into everything. The boss at the end of each world, you have two options. You can either destroy him with fireballs or you can use the axe that's located behind him in order to destroy him. And again, even though that's a weapon that you're picking up in a way, you still have to jump as the primary action to get there because it's on an elevated platform. So it's still you're still using that A button to get to the end of the boss fight. One thing that I haven't talked about all that much is the odd world that's set up by Super Mario Brothers. This is something that's possible in part because of the heightened graphical abilities of the Nintendo Entertainment System at the time. And I'm, I'm calling it the NES, by the way, but in Japan, of course, it was called the Famicom, the family computer. But Super Mario Bros. graphics are advanced enough that you can get more characterization than you could in a lot of earlier games on a lot of earlier platforms. Um, there are still definitely shortcuts made. You can tell that there are only a limited number of pieces of artwork that are used to represent blocks, for instance. They're just color shifted into various palettes. And uh, the clouds in the first level um, are also turned green and used for bushes. It's a famous shortcut that was taken by the developers of the game. But you've still got this really weird universe where Mario is characterized as a plumber. And so as a result, he's going through pipes. It, it's kind of a weird dream logic here where pipes are somehow forms of transportation for plumbers as if being a plumber gives you some sort of elemental control over the aspects of, of water delivery systems. And, of course, Mario's Italian heritage, which is an increasingly appalling stereotype as he gets more and more voice acting, um, in Super Mario Brothers is referenced by the fact that everything is very mushroom-themed. And it's interesting that Japan is a heavily mushroomed society, but they're view, or the Japanese developers' view of Italians was most likely included the consumption of mushrooms, because there are super mushrooms that make you into Super Mario, and there are one-up mushrooms, and the Goombas are a sort of evil mushroom, and the mushroom retainers of Princess Toadstool are good if rather ineffectual 
sentient mushrooms. This mushroom theme is very strange. And then the other enemies are turtles and squid and fish, and these are all things that you can eat. It's a very gastronomic-themed game. And and so this, this world that's presented by Super Mario Brothers, even though you don't get much plotting to it, it's very, very strange, even for the time. Pac-Man was a game where you were eating things, and so of course you had fruit and stuff, but Super Mario Brothers, there's no real direct explanation for why it's so focused on mushrooms and edible enemies. And it doesn't really ever give much of an explanation for why jumping on enemies kills them, other than the out-of-game world explanation of that maintaining the primary verb of jumping. I think that this kind of threefold combination, the gameplay that's just very solid, all sorts of interacting, conflicting strategies that the player has to deal with while in this, at first, simple-seeming gameplay environment. You've got the, the graphics and the world that's presented, which is surreal and strange, and then you've got the, the music, which I mentioned earlier, which is very well done and maddening. There are only four pieces in the game, and you will know all of them if you have played them for not very long at all. So this was an incredibly successful game, one of the most successful games of all time. For a while, it was the most successful video game of all time. And it basically single-handedly revived the home console industry, presented us with a new game mechanic, and you're still seeing its effects today. You're still seeing games with platforming mechanics where you're running and jumping, um, either using mechanics from... Super Mario Brothers, or from its sequel, Mario 64, which sort of did for 3D games what Super Mario Brothers did for two-dimensional games. You see the collection of random identical collectibles in all sorts of games. If you you look at uh, Katamari Damacy, you're, in essence getting that same feeling that you got in Mario of collecting coins that aren't necessarily in your way that eventually originates in Pac-Man, even though in Pac-Man they were required for playing the game. The use of power-ups and the loss of power-ups when you're damaged is something that is at least popularized by Super Mario Brothers. I'm not sure if it existed previous to that, but certainly anyone who does that in a current game owes a debt to Super Mario Brothers. The existence of alternate paths is something that's new and, and done in a new way in Super Mario Brothers, and it's informed digital games ever since. So hopefully I've said a few new things, or at least things that you haven't really thought about, about Super Mario Brothers. If you can think of something that I've left out, 
or if you disagree with me on some count, or if you just want to expand on something that I've said, please leave a comment at ludusnovus.net. I'll also have a link there uh, in the show notes to the Design Patterns for Role-Playing Games book that, that I talked about at the beginning of, of the second half. And I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at gregory.weir at gmail.com or leave a comment on ludusnovus.net. Tell me what you think. I'd appreciate it. The music for this episode is Lullaby Set by Shira Common and is available under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. Ludus Novus is offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. Thanks for listening.